Brian, we hear filmmakers say that filmmaking keeps them out of trouble, or they say, you know, this is all I can do. This is why I do it, even though it's hard at times. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I wonder, is it really all they can do, or that's just what they sort of say to themselves? That's what they want to do? What are your thoughts on that? I'm sure it varies for each filmmaker. Uh, I mean, for me, I can do other things, but what I find happens is if I don't do something creative, and for me, my creativity seems to always go visual, so it always goes into movies. If a certain amount of time passes and I haven't done something, I start to go a little crazy, a little stir crazy. So there's like this drive to, for me, it's a drive to tell stories. And then eventually I, I write a lot and I write a lot of stories. And usually the story we end up doing with my filmmaking partner, Lo, is usually one that I've had for a while that I keep coming back to or won't go away. Like it won't, sometimes I'll be able to write something and it's kind of done, even though it's like never seen the light of day, maybe it's a script or a story or just an idea, I can get it out of my system and it feels like, okay, I'm okay. But every now and then there's a story that I just keep, I keep thinking about it. It comes back and comes back and comes back. And usually that's the one where it's like, I have to do this one, you know, find a way to make it in a format that other people can see it, you know. Is there sort of a time frame for you? Like if you're in between projects, is there like a, a three month window where if you don't have something new to work on, you can start to feel yourself slipping, so to speak? Uh, I mean, I'm always like thinking of ideas. Um, so it's like, it, I would say it's longer than a three month window for me. As long as, I, as long as I'm like collecting my ideas and thinking about stories and writing it down, I'm fine. I think it's like, if, if it's like going up to a year and I'm not actively involved in making a movie or making some other creative project, which will come to fruition so other people can see it, then I probably get a, get the shakes almost. It's like, I have to do it, <laughs> you know, I have to do something. Uh-huh, yeah. What do you start to see yourself slipping into when you know, like, do you, do you become bored easily? Or how do you know, like, oh, you know what this is? After a while you learn, this is because I need to start working on something. You know, for me, it's, it's like, really, I just kind of get into a malaise. It's like, because it really, it's like doing something creative is kind of what makes me feel alive. And if too much time goes by and I'm not doing something creative, it's just, I don't know, I find myself kind of sinking into this like malaise of just life isn't really working for me. And then I'm like, what's wrong? And I'm like, and then it kind of hits me like, oh, because I'm not doing something creative. <laughs> you know, so amazingly, I forget every time. And I'm like, why am I feeling this way? And then it's like, oh, it's because I'm not creatively involved in something. Uh, fortunately, I have a lot of other things that I do, which, are also creative, so it helps me kind of sustain it a little bit. But for me, it's like the projects I'm most passionate about are the ones that uh, my wife and filmmaking partner, Laurence Lowe, that we do together. Uh, and those are the ones, because it's our project and it's, it, it's a passion project. So we kind of control it from beginning, middle and end. So it's very much like our vision of what we want to tell. And that is to me the most creatively satisfying is when you can do a project like that where it's not gonna have too much outside influence that changes what you're trying to make. What other creative things do you do? Uh, I do editing. So I, I do editing for a television series, television shows, uh, which obviously involves a lot of creativity. I do a lot of like uh, docu uh, reality type shows, which actually requires you as an editor to be very involved in story because you're working with the story people and the producers to help figure out the story and develop so it's like it's more than just cutting something from a script 
it's very, it really engages you creatively because you're really working on figuring out like, well, how do we tell the story? What is the story? Sometimes you're figuring out, well, you know, what is this? You know, what is the story? And how do you tell a beginning, middle and end and make it dramatic and, and, and keep people engaged with it? Yeah, I heard an author speak this weekend, a Brazilian author, and forgive me on her name, I'll, I'll put it at the below the line part of the video. But she said that when she gets writer's block and she says it's very real, that she has to do things like go to museums, just just you know th other creative things that are not writing do you ever feel blocked and if so do you have a ways to get out of it well i definitely feel like uh, going places like uh, lo and i like taking trips and going places we like to go out to the desert uh, or to the mountains sometimes up to the beach or the ocean it's like i get a lot of inspiration from locations uh, especially on uh, with movies uh, and it gets a little tricky sometimes because sometimes I, I, I fall so in love with the location it's hard for me to imagine not shooting it there but uh, but there'll be usually a location can be a really big inspiration for me like I'll see something and, and then it starts my mind going what if what if what if uh, and uh, there's been places that we've incorporated uh, in our films uh, sometimes it's not that exact same location but like an idea from that location will find its way into the story, something inspired by. So I, I find like the best way for me, at least creatively, is to find the inspiration from real life. Uh, because if you don't do that, then I feel like you get into a cycle of copying, which is really easy to fall into. I mean, it's really easy to look at a, a movie and go, oh, I like that movie, but I would have done something like this with that movie. And then, you know, you can easily change it a few degrees and it'd be a new movie. But in essence, it's going to be so built on the other film that it's not really a new thing. Whereas if you can get the inspiration from life or, or stories you hear from other people, like real stories that happened to them or uh, they know of a friend, something happened. A lot of times that can spark the imagination and think like, oh, well, you know, what if what if that story happened and then this happened and then that happened. And to me, that's that's the most fun. It's kind of like taking that inspiration from real life. Is location ever a character in any of your films? Oh, I know you for do sure. mostly yes. horror. Yes, so. <laughs> I would say location uh, for us is almost always uh, a character in almost every film we've done. I think it's funny because uh, uh, oh, this, this, this film, uh, Dark Remains, I forget, this is the Polish version, but oh, anyway, okay, yeah, this is Dark, Dark Remains. Uh, a location that uh, Laurence Lowe found as I was writing the script, she fell in love with this like prison location that was in uh, Rome, Georgia, which is no longer in existence, but it was a closed prison. Uh, but they, we could actually go there and shoot. And she's like, well, you have to add a prison to the story because this prison's so great. I'm like, well, there's no way to put a prison in the story. But anyway, after like complaining for a while, I woke up the next day and I'm like, oh, well, if this prison became part of the story like this, it changed everything and it made it better. I mean, it rippled through and the prison became such a thing. Like when it came out in Japan, they're like, they, they retitled it Ghost Prison. <laughs> and like, you know, none of these things are in the movie, but it's not even the prison that's in the movie. And but they like to do this with clip art and change the uh, graphics when it goes overseas. But they decided they loved the prison so much, the movie title became Ghost Prison. So definitely like locations become like a huge thing. Uh, this film, uh, which was our second film, Ghost of the Needle, which they retitled Asphyxia, uh, I think in Spain. Uh, that one, factor, a factory, is a very key location for the main character and a lot of the events take place in the factory. And that became like a very key part to the film. And once we found the factory, 
we did a lot of revisions on the script and writing because the, the location inspired us. Because I had other things in the script, but once you see the real factory, you're like, oh, well, this could happen and this could happen. And this is, there was an elevator there. There's this amazing freight elevator that was there. And that added like this whole thing with going between the different floors. And, and so like for me, it's like locations, including the first film we did, uh, Freezer, uh, was our first film. And this actually took place on what was uh, the family farm that I spent a lot of time on growing up. Uh, oh. I was in Virginia, right across the border from Tennessee, oh, wow. and uh, and I spent a lot of childhood uh, years and weekends and weeks on this farm. And that location was like it, it basically was the script because I basically once I came up with the story and realized it was happening here, it like you would go well the characters here and the characters in the situations what would happen because there are these things in that location. So once you bring in your protagonist and your antagonist, and you go well what would they do? And then based on being in this environment, and then you basically get scenes and you get moments and it, it actually influences the writing of the script. And I find that, I don't know, I find that very exciting uh, when your location can actually be the, the lo when the location that inspires the story can actually be the one that you shoot at, that's the best. Uh, I mean, it doesn't always work out because you maybe can't, for practical reasons, shoot at that location, um, but that's the best case scenario. Uh, otherwise, whenever you do get the real location, you you kind of have to embrace it and make changes instead of trying to fight it to be the location you don't have because that'll work against you. But uh, location, definitely a character. Yeah. Well, you've brought several DVDs here and they all have amazing covers. You were telling us off camera that some of them are actually the same films, yes. right? But then during, is it the distribution phase, then they change titles and covers? Yes. Okay. Well, basically what happens is uh, when you get your foreign sales agent or foreign distributor who basically sells it to the other countries, they get all the artwork uh, that you have to redo whatever cover they want and they can retitle it to whatever title they want. And lots of times they'll add their own artwork. Um, like for example, uh, this film um, is Dark Remains. Uh, this was kind of similar to the American cover uh, but they they changed it a little bit, and then in in Canada in Canada yeah I think it's Polish uh -huh. in Canada um, they really changed it they decided well okay we want a blue we want a blue look and it it's unrated which is funny because it's the same version as the rated version but I guess they didn't re-rate it in Canada so oh, wow. is the unrated version so that was their take on it but still using the same basic poster art but then when it got to Japan they really loved the prison that was in the film. So they decided to go with ghost prison and they added a prison that actually isn't the prison in the movie. And then they used this person from clip art who's not in the movie at all, but there is a ghost wow. kind of like her in the movie, but they decided they wanted this look for the Asian market. So it's more of an Asian actress. So you oh, know, they okay. went that way. So it just, it changed. And then of course, I actually love this one a lot. Australia, they decided to focus on this, there's a, a ghost girl character in the movie, and they decided to like make the focus more on her. Huh. So they totally changed the art and put the other ghosts kind of around her. But that was a really, I thought, creative, you know, change. But it's all the same movie, so it's wow. kind of, it's kind of funny. And then you know, sometimes they'll change the title, like uh, "Ghost in the Needle," uh, became uh, in Spain, it became Asphyxia. Uh, and what's funny is they actually got to use, that was supposed to be the cover in the U.S. for the movie, but they um, 
they decided they couldn't use it because they had to get it rated back then. And the ratings board would not allow this image to be used for an R rating. And we had to deliver an R rating or the other distributor wanted us to. So, um, so I actually got our original artwork <laughs> that changed the title Asphyxia, but I love this title. It's a great title. And in other countries, it was called Dead Still. So it just, it just changes depending on what they think they can sell in that, uh, in that marketplace. And that's, so that's five different versions of the same movie, pretty well, much? No, well, the, the two different ones. There's Dark Remains, and, oh, and this see. one was Ghost of the Needle. Ah, okay. Uh, and then this other one, which I did bring, was called uh, Freezer. Most of the countries called it Freezer, with apostrophe ER, because it's Freeze Her. Uh, and they, they, this image kind of stayed the same in most of the countries, but in the U.S. it got uh, released differently. They decided to call it Cold Blood because they thought they were worried that Freezer sounded too comedic because it was like they were afraid that Freeze hyphen er would make it feel more like a... It's a black comedy, but it's a very subtle, dark comedy. Oh. So I think that's one of the reasons they wanted to change it. So, um, so yeah. And then... This cover changed. We had a totally different VOD cover and then the DVD they wanted to make it look more like a mm, slasher-esque, I guess, because they put some blood in and then an environment that's not in the movie and clip art in the back, uh, which doesn't really represent the movie well. And that's one of the challenges is, you know, distributors are always like, well, we want to have an image that makes people get the movie, but the trick of it is you also you want an image to grab people so it's good to get other people's advice on what can market and sell the movie but what's important is you want the image to attract the people who are going to like the movie because you want to be able to sell what you're really selling and trouble can run you what you can run into with the cover is they can make a cover where they're selling to a different subgenre of horror and maybe those subgenre fans won't be happy with the movie because it's a different movie, but the people who'd really like that movie and in a different subgenre for won't check it out because of the cover. So you kind of can get yourself in this, in this like trap. So uh, it's tricky when dealing with distributors, you always want to get one that will work with you in terms of the cover art or at least involve you in it. But it's very difficult, of course, for you to ever get final say on it but it's always good to try to make it part of the process that you can be involved in it. Uh, so you can try to keep it on track to what you think represents the movie for what it is. So. Forgive me, what are the different subgenres of, of, of horror? Because it's interesting, like your movie could be divided into different subgenres just depending on how they want to market it. Well, it's the marketing divides into different subgenres. <laughs> uh, but basically it's like, you know, there's like, uh, you know, the slasher movies. Uh, you know, you get slasher movies, you get, uh, you know, creature films, uh, you can get uh, more science fiction films uh, in the horror genre. I mean, like Malignant was medical horror. So it was like a medical horror subgenre. You have supernatural subgenre and within the supernatural, you can have supernatural like possession exorcist or you can have ghost. So it's like there's basically all these different little subgenres in horror and lots of times they'll, they'll mix. Like our, our, our last film um, that uh, is on the festival circuit right now, Echoes, oh, nice. Echoes of Fear. Oh, great. Um, it's a movie, it's a supernatural horror movie, supernatural horror ghost movie. 
um, but it takes an interesting turn. Still says a supernatural ghost movie, but it takes an interesting turn, which we don't talk about because we don't want to ruin the movie. For people. Sure, okay. but but it, but it's an example of how the uh, sub different subgenres can mix within the same film, uh, and that can be really exciting. Well, I think when when as an audience, that's what I like as an audience person is I, I love to be able to go into a movie. I like to go in cold. I, I like when I go to see yeah. a movie. It's like if I know <laughs> I'm going to see it. It's like I will not watch the trailer. I, I just try to avoid reading anything about, it, especially reviews, because they tend to oh, give no. you a giant plot synopsis. Yeah. Uh, I like I like if I know I'm going to see a movie. Like oh, I want to see that movie. I like I try to like know nothing about it and then go see it. And then because that way I like to be surprised. Uh, and then after that, I'll read the reviews and, and, and look at the trailer and that kind of stuff. But right. I like to go in cold. I'm the same way. And, and I like to hear the director. It's fun. And I love it when there's a movie that you, you think it's going one way and then it goes into another. It's like, to me, really exciting. Uh, in horror, when you, when you can't quite figure out what, you know, it's, it's fun that way. You know, because it, it, it's like evolves and it has the twists and turns and it's just organic and it's, it's just a lot of fun. And a lot of marketing now... I get it, they want to sell the movie, but lots of times to sell the movie, they like kind of blow everything. And maybe um, that'll make someone rent and watch the movie, but it's really going to diminish their experience because they'll take stuff from the third act. And and uh, for me, I'm a very visual person. So when I watch a trailer like that, I remember those images. So it will affect me as I'm watching the movie because I know in the back of my brain things are coming because I haven't seen it yet from the trailer. Maybe other people can watch the trailer and kind of blank after seeing it and not have it ruined for them, but yeah. So the trailer for our last film, Echoes of Fear, it was a real challenge for me was to do a trailer which has the mood and the atmosphere and tells you it's a suspenseful, scary movie, but at the same time, and shows good images in there, but at the same time, does it blow the movie? So you can still have the experience where those, where that suspense and scares and stuff will work when you see the movie, that the trailer hasn't ruined it. That was a big challenge. I think I ended up doing like six or seven drafts of the trailer, working with uh, uh, the I worked with the uh, foreign sales agent, foreign distributor on it as well, getting some notes. I got notes from other people as well. I mean, I kept getting notes that people felt like what could help market the movie, and then I had to figure out a way to kind of like do those notes without ruining, uh, giving anything away and ruining it. So it was a challenge. Sure, it was a challenge. Can you think of some current films? Because like, let's say Hereditary, I didn't know too much about it going in, and I was pleasantly surprised by the twists and turns and i wouldn't say i'm like a total horror like you know fanatic right but i really i i was really impressed with that can you think of other films where that really takes you on a ride where you're not expecting stuff oh gosh so often in horror uh is so good about that uh i'm trying to think oh gosh even carrie i mean i, I use those two examples probably too much so i've got to stop but <laughs> well no, no carrie's great see that's a great example i mean it's hard to remember now because you know, the marketing turned into like her soaked in the blood. Right, the on the stage. But yeah. initially, you know, everyone, know, of course, that also came from the book. So in a way, they they assumed that a lot of people already knew the basic gist of the story because of the Stephen King book. Sure. So I think they probably weren't too worried about ruining it. Um, shoot, I was just thinking about an example of one and then I lost it. Well, The Exorcist, too, because you're not really totally sure... You hope that she's going to be cured, right? Right. But you right. don't know, and the doctor, the he becomes increasingly more and more angry, right? You know, and kind of becomes his own monster, you know. <laughs> right. Well, that's like a, that's like it's it's funny. Like both of those, it's such a challenge when they're based on a book, 
because then you're dealing with the expectation that everyone wants it to follow the book, but then you have to, it's a movie, so you have to adapt it. You can't just do the book, because usually in a book, especially a Stephen King book, uh, you know, so much is internal with what's inside the character's heads, which you can't really get. You have to kind of like, I mean, a great example is The Shining, which is an amazing book by Stephen King, and it's an amazing movie by Stanley Kubrick. They're very, very, very different, but they're both amazing. I mean, Kubrick basically took the essence of what was in King's book and, and said, well, how can I tell this visually in a movie that will work? And, you know, I think King got really mad because a lot of things were dropped. And a lot of things, unless you've read the book, you wouldn't even understand when watching the movie. But Kubrick knew, like, it had to be its own thing. You know, instead of the hedge monsters, you have the maze, the hedge maze. Because he knew that the hedge monsters is great in the book, but especially at that time with the special effects, it would it could be really cheesy and, and, and just, you know, not work and become a laughable thing. So he kind of made that same scary environment by making the hotel a character, but doing it visually uh, with the camera and like the great shot following behind the kid on the big boat, like riding through the hallway of the thing. So, uh, and I was trying to think of like your, uh, your first question about movies that surprised you when you watched it. Like my brain is just, out of nerves is just defaulting back to like the early movies I saw when I was was younger, like uh, John Carpenter's The Thing. I knew nothing about that when I when I watched it, and that's and it's so different from the original movie version, and and so different from the short story that you just had no idea going into that movie what was going to happen. And I'm assuming it's not a spoiler now because everyone's seen this movie. <laughs> but but like when when you're watching the movie and you have this dog and you're like, oh my gosh, don't shoot the dog. Who are these crazy people in the helicopter? Shooting this, shooting at this poor dog, and then of course you realize later that like the people in the helicopter know what that dog is, and it's not a dog, and it's the alien, it's the creature. But when you're first watching it and having that experience, you don't know that. So it's like it's 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 so great because it it like tricks your sympathies without with, because it's like you don't know what's going to happen, and that's a great movie where you like you never know who the creature is and who's the person who actually is the alien. So that constantly changes and evolves, and you don't know where it's going. It's such a effective film with environment as well, with the location. And like people forget because everyone knows now Norman Bates is the killer in Psycho, but when Psycho came out, people did not know that. So people thought that there was this guy with this crazy murdering mother <laughs> doing this. And that's what original people watching Psycho believe. And you know, Hitchcock made this whole thing like, please don't ruin the ending, it's the only ending I have, or something like that, I'm paraphrasing. But that was part of the marketing, it was like, don't blow the ending. And so for people to have that experience and not know, it's like, unfortunately, like when, by the time I saw Psycho, it was so known that Norman Bates is the killer that you don't get that experience anymore. But to be, I mean, imagine to be in the theater and have that experience of watching Psycho, not knowing that Norman Bates is the killer and you have such sympathy for him because he's this poor henchman sure. boy. <laughs> so um, that's a great example. Like, you know, and I don't know, it's like, how hard would it be now to try to put out a movie like Psycho for the first time and not have it be ruined? You know, not have it be spoiled and ruined. It'd be, it's be so difficult now with social media and everything. It's just very difficult. And basically people, basically people have to beg. <laughs> it's like, please don't, you know, like the filmmakers basically say like, please don't ruin the ending, you know? And then everyone rushes to the theater sometimes to see it the first weekend because they know it's going to be ruined. Because once it comes out, like everyone's going to start blathering about it and, and writing articles, and there'll there'll be spoilers now in headlines. Like I I won't read 
the article because I don't want to ruin the movie, but then they'll, they'll blow it in the headline. You're like, what are you doing? So it's like just by seeing the headline, it's kind of ruining something from the film. Or on Twitter. I see a lot. Yeah, Twitter. It's like, you know, it's, it's, very, it's very frustrating, I think, to be able to go into uh, a movie night cold is very difficult. I think you have to actively work on it now. Would you be a filmmaker today if you didn't go to USC? Oh, yeah. I, I was like making movies like way before USC. I mean, I started, I started doing movies when I was 10 years old. Uh, my dad worked uh, at Magnavox and uh, he brought home like an old video camera where it's like this huge video camera with a tethered cord and a separate deck. Uh, so actually the first thing I did when I was 10 years old was I adapted something, uh, House of Frankenstein. Um, I, I use that title, but I adapted like something that someone else had written and adapted it. And with my friends, we did this thing. I played Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, but someone else played Frankenstein. Someone played the Wolfman, but we actually did House of Frankenstein. Uh, and that was the first thing I did when I was 10 years old. And then I got into doing Super 8 films and uh, cutting Super 8 films and that kind of stuff. And uh, so I've been doing that since I was 10. So I kind of always knew from that point on, I, I wanted to, because it started out, I wanted to tell stories. And the problem is I would write these plays, but the plays were really elaborate and would have required the audience to like run around in the woods with my friends to follow the play, which I guess would be kind of cool now, but at the time it wasn't very practical. So that's how I kind of got into to, to filmmaking was I wanted to be able to tell the story and it was, it was not practical to bring the audience to us. I need to figure out a way to tell the story and bring it to them. And that's how I got into doing movies. And once I started doing it, and realizing like, oh my gosh, look what you can do. You know, you can do time compression, you can do all these things you can't do in a play. Uh, and then it became really exciting as a kid that basically your imagination just goes. And all those little shorts are, are ridiculous, of course, because your kid's running around making it, but it's, it's, it was a great way to learn. Uh, and because there was no YouTube <laughs> back then, it's like none of those things were seen. So, so nothing, nothing can embarrass me because it doesn't exist in a way that anyone can see it. But I, I always knew from that point on that I wanted to make movies and I was always into horror and science fiction and thriller and those subgenres always kind of merged oftentimes, like they would kind of like blend together. I would be like a science fiction horror or horror sci-fi or, you know, if it was thriller, it'd be like, big horror elements in it. And so it kind of just gravitated and, and grew into that. And our, our first film I did with uh, my wife, Laurence, my first feature uh, was a horror film, psychological horror film. And we really enjoyed it. And it kind of like led into our next horror film and they've all been kind of different subgenres. We gravitate most, I would say, to supernatural. Uh, our, our, uh, our first two were kind of like psychological slash supernatural. So it's almost like the first one was 100% psychological, but there were supernatural occurrences because it was happening in his head. And the second one was much more Ghost of the Needle, was much more like, is it in his head or is it out there? And then our third film we did was a straight up supernatural ghost movie where we made it all, it kind of went all the way. And our last one we did, Echoes of Fear, uh, also is a supernatural uh, ghost movie. So, uh, but even within that, there's a key element to the film talking about hauntings and there's a debate she has with her best friend in terms of like, well, am I, am I going crazy? Is it a ghost out there? Or am I going crazy and seeing things? And, and her friend kind of tells her, it's like, well, if a ghost is going to reach you, it, it's going to be in your head either way. 
So I'm kind of like, I'm very intrigued by the idea of kind of breaking down this, this barrier of whether it's something in your head versus out there. And this idea that if it's in your head, it's not real. Well, all reality is in our head. So I mean, that's how we process the world. That's true. So it's like, to me, it becomes a very artificial borderline in a lot of movies where it's like, oh, is it in her head or in her, his head and is he crazy or is it out there and it's supernatural? Where I think, to me, it's more intriguing, like the blurred line and of, in, in terms of well, what that means uh, between what's reality in the head and reality out there when all reality is what you process inside your head. Right. Didn't Philip K. Dick also kind of wonder about that? Oh, Not Philip only K. Dick, it, yeah. into his own life too. Oh, my goodness. It's dark. It's, it's a ghost. ghost. In your mind, what is the purpose of story? The purpose of story? Yeah. Like, uh... Oh, what, why do we need story? Even oh, if it's why, why horror, we... science fiction, oh, okay, what is yeah. the reason we need story? I, I don't know. It's like, I feel like, I feel like story is like something that probably happened, I don't know, probably before humans could even speak. Probably story was being gestures and being told uh, by drawing things in the sand or in the ashes or pointing or gesturing. I, I think humans, I don't know, I think there's an innate need to tell stories. I mean, part of it is to tell the, the, the real story of what's going on, like your story of your life so you can communicate with people in terms of what you need and stuff. But then I think it really quickly goes into just being able to imagine different scenarios because you kind of have to do that to live life. You kind of have to think about like, if I do this, what could happen, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, it starts when your imagination starts going and thinking like that, then you start thinking more and more fanciful ideas and, and then, you know, you start making up characters. I don't know. It's just like, I feel like it's part of basic communication with people is, is, is like, we want to be able to read a story or experience a story that's different from our own life experience. We want to be exposed to something different than what we're seeing in our daily daily to day lives um, because it just activates the brain and just makes you think about things in the world differently, reading a story and, hear, and seeing other people's viewpoints, which comes from the story, whether it be fiction or nonfiction. I think because someone else created it or wrote it, you're being exposed to like a different way of thinking about the world, which I think is just really important to be able to function in the world, to be able to see things from a different perspective. I think it's an easy trap we can fall into when we only surround ourselves with stories of just what we believe or what we think about or just relates to our little bubble. Be, I think it's very dangerous. I think story is very important so we can understand how other people live and exist in the world and see those other viewpoints so we can be more open-minded and understand that like everything doesn't revolve around our little personal lives. And all that comes from story, I think. That's a great point, and even more so now because we click on an article online, mm -hmm. and now that reality is reflected back to us a hundred times because now that algorithm is going to show us oh, so that's so what you, many. Similar. That's what you want to read, <laughs> <laughs> right? And now you know they, they think that that's you know you're you're wanting to learn all about golf, and so right, right. It's very difficult. You're, it's a, that's that's a really good example because it's, it's harder and harder to like because I have a lot of interest and I like to look at a lot of different articles, and I notice that. Like, like if I click on an article about X, all of a sudden there's all these articles about the same thing coming up. It's like, no, I just kind of wanted to <laughs> sample that and I'm good. And if I want to know more about it, I'm going to Google it. Uh, but yeah, it, it, 
it is interesting how, I mean, it's amazing because of the internet that you have all this access information that was so hard to get. And the flip side of it is, you're right, now that there's this way of algorithms channeling things to you, it's almost limiting you a little bit. It was felt even like 10 years ago on the internet, felt much more wide open. Like you would just go anywhere, or go who knows what you'd click on and go see and go find. And now that they're trying to target you and guide you down a certain path, you kind of have to actively fight it, I think, now. You have to be aware of it and fight it. Uh, and I think uh, it's dangerous and people don't realize. I think people are becoming more aware of it now, I hope. But it's very dangerous and people don't realize that things are being channeled to them. Because they start to believe like, oh, that's what's going on in the world. But is it? You know. And then you kind of have to make your list of things. If it's nonfiction, for me at least, it's like I have my list of places I go to, which I feel like will be able to give me real news. I mean, I remember growing up. Uh, maybe I'm showing my age, but I remember growing up that when you basically got news, you weren't worried about, I mean, there was a whole separate thing like, this is blah blah's opinion. This is the opinion moment in the newscast or whatever. And the rest of it was news. It was basically facts and that's the way it was. And uh, now it's like very hard to find the places where you know you can get real news. They're out there. Uh, definitely like most of the mainstream big old news organizations, you know, you can still like trust them, but there's this, so many people are getting their news now from other little places that you're like, well, where are they, you know, who are these people and how much research did they put in? And you know, so it's dangerous. It's probably a dangerous topic to get into. Maybe the algorithm could be haunting someone. Yeah. That'll be the next one. It's stalking them. That's actually not bad. Yeah, yeah that's, actually, that's actually not a bad idea. That's actually you know? a good idea. How did you break into the business? Well, I got started um, work-wise. I got started from a writing uh, producing standpoint. And uh, I started out uh, actually uh, in Atlanta, Georgia uh, at a production company. And it was writing and producing shows. Uh, some of them were uh, going on NBC. They were basically documentary specials. And uh, TBS, uh, when they had uh, documentary specials uh, on that as well. So I kind of started out in that writing and producing. Uh, and then that kind of uh, did more into directing and that uh, as well. But at the same time, I've always been kind of like doing my original story projects. And then once I got together with um, Laurence, uh, my wife Lo, we basically found we had very similar interests. Uh, and she came at it more from a visual DP side initially. But as we started doing projects together, everything kind of really blurred together uh, in terms of what we would do. Uh, and so we basically have been making, I mean, Echoes of Fear is our, is our fifth uh, feature film. Uh, it's also our fifth horror feature uh, that we've done together. But it was the first one that uh, we co-directed, officially co-directed. Although, I mean, because the lines had just been keep, kept blurring anyway with what we did. And eventually in this one, we're like, okay, you know what? You're going to officially co-direct this one. Because we, she already is a DP and we were very collaborative. I mean, the directing and, and, the, and the work you do as a DP, it was already getting like this and she was working with the actors. It was just happening organically. So we just basically moved it all the way to say we're officially co-directing. So we co-directed it. Uh, we work on the story together. Uh, I, I actually write the script, the mechanics of writing the script, but she's very involved in story and, and, and story ideas. Uh, and taking the scrum once I get it and coming up with like all these original interesting ideas which inherently make it a lot more complicated 
which is funny because she's also the producer. So she gives me these limitations like, okay, you need to do it like this. And then I do it like that. And then she starts expanding the story. It's like, it becomes more and more difficult to produce, but it's okay because she's doing it. But we basically develop the story and, and grow it from there. And it's a very organic process. You went to USC, but you grew up in the South. Is that right? Yeah, oh yes, I was born in Jersey, but I grew up in East Tennessee. Oh, you were born in Jersey? Yeah, oh, it was wow. very, very few years there. Interesting. I, then okay. I, I really grew up, uh, my childhood was, was in East Tennessee. Okay. So a lot of, uh, like our first film we did together, uh, Freezer, a lot of that was based on uh, a farm, a family farm that uh, I spent a lot of time on uh, growing up. But uh, definitely like for me, environment's very important from a horror film and, and from growing up in the South, there was a lot of stuff in the mountains and trees and woods and farms and barns and all that kind of stuff. So that was very much in the early beginning uh, when we did our first feature, a lot of that came into that. And a lot of secrets too. If you watch um, uh, Sharp Objects, yes. I don't know if you watch it. Yes, it's yes. Fantastic, love it. Um, the, 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 the secretive nature of all right. the characters and them sort of, sort of revealing themselves and holding it back. So it's something very interesting that you know, and then the, you know, the bless your heart, but then you can't tell. Well, it's very Do they really mean yeah. it or not? Yes, <laughs> it, it's very interesting in a small town. It's like, it's weird. You have to keep your guard up so much in a small town because it's like everybody, excuse me, everybody knows everybody. And then um, gossip gets around and everybody talks. Mm -hmm. So you just kind of really have to keep like a very careful face. It's like when you get into the city, which I love, it's like, it's like everyone is so cool, nobody cares. Right. It's so great. You can just be yourself and no one really, really cares anymore. And to me, it's like very liberating <laughs> that you don't have to like try to be like, oh, I need to be careful. Because you know? everyone's different, everyone's crazy, and everyone kind of knows it in the city. Right. Uh, and so it's like it's not really that big of a deal. But yeah, definitely in the small town, which is why I think a lot of great horror movies set in small town environments sure. and that because it's like it does add that mystery and intrigue because everyone's always watching everyone else and you know what's the neighbor doing you know right. and, you know what are they up to and that kind of thing so well i think too they don't have enough going on in their lives in small yes, towns yes, and i think yes. a lot of bad stuff comes out of that whether it's real in, real stuff that someone's gossiping about or right. fabricated and i think uh, you can even like look at um, the beginning of Rambo, you know, so right. he's going into this this new town and then Ryan Dennehy sees him, you know, and he's like, you know, I don't recognize that guy, you know, so there's so right. little going on right. that when something that's so, sort of out of the ordinary, you know, what is it, idle hands or the yeah. devil's, <laughs> whatever that whatever that saying is. Well, but, there's a great, um, I can't remember the, the story, but one of the original Sherlock Holmes, Arthur Conan Doyle stories that they publish in The Strand, he's like in a train with Watson and they're leaving the city, heading out into the country and Watson's like looking out like, oh, look at the beautiful countryside. And then Sherlock Holmes says, well, it's an occupational hazard, but I can't look at it like that because I, I see all these neighbors and they're all separated and they're all so isolated. I'm always like, well, what are they doing? They could be doing anything because no one's really can see what they're doing. And he goes, that's why he said like in the city, he would say in the city, at least you have your neighbors keeping you in check because you, you're, you're being watched a little bit. There's people around you, but like out in the farm in the countryside, it's like who knows what's in the barn or in that basement or hidden in that locked house. Uh, and uh, in like in the farm, uh, family farm I grew up, it's like my brother-in-law stayed some time in, in, in the house before the farm got sold. 
And he was like, it was a firm believer. Like if you just took a compass and, and you drew out a circle that encompassed the same population, like all the stuff that's happening in a city is happening in the country. It's all just about the being of the population, but it's scarier in the country because it's so isolated. And if something's happening, it's like, how are you gonna find out about it? How did you get your first feature film produced? Oh, well, the, the first feature film uh, produced was, uh, I mean, once uh, I partnered up with my wife, Laurence, and uh, I was like working on, it's funny, I was gonna do another short film. I did a lot of short films. Ever since like I was 10 years old doing short films. So I was gonna do another short film. And uh, I basically was getting frustrated because I couldn't really get the story, I couldn't cover the story I wanted to tell in the short film. It was, it was getting too long. And then we did some tests in Super 8 and I wasn't happy with how it looked. And I was well, I really need to do it in 16, but the story's too long and it would cost too much money in 16 if we did the short, because it won't make any money. So you're gonna lose all the money you put into it. And she's like, well, let's just make it into a feature. So once he kind of like threw down the gauntlet, uh, we started working on, on the story and fleshing it out and figure out, and we did a lot of, so many uh, script passes on that, why we were raising the money and putting the money together. And we, we got a great investor, uh, Kendall Dreyer, uh, who had never invested in a movie before, but he was very interested in us and he was interested in film. Uh, and you know, we pitched him the story and this is the story you want to tell. And he came on board as an investor and we also invested ours as well with some money and also our time and energy to do it uh, in sweat equity. And, uh, it took us a while. It was our first film we shot over the course of a year. Uh, I was shooting at an old family farm, but I was living in Atlanta. So I was finishing my day job getting in a car, we were driving five hours to the location, shooting all weekend, packing back up and coming back so I could go to work on Monday. So, and she was working as well at a TV station at the time. So it, we basically, except for two weeks, we were able to shoot a little bit, I think 14 days in a row, but the rest of it was all done like a day and a half at a time every week over the course of a year. So it was a long process. So how does a first-time filmmaker, feature filmmaker, I realize you had shorts that you had mm -hmm. made, convince someone who has never invested in a movie before to do so? You know, I, th I think when you're doing your, your first one, if you're doing it the way we did, it was a very micro-budget way. It was just more money because back then, it's like you pretty much had to shoot film if you wanted it to look good at all. I mean, the, the digital revolution hadn't really reached the point where it could look so good. So we knew we wanted to shoot in 16, which of course with film stock and processing and transfer and stuff already gives you a certain budget level that you're gonna have to raise money. And I think for the first one, it's like, usually it comes from someone that you know that, uh, because they have to believe in you. So, you know, it's hard to get someone to believe in you if you haven't done a feature yet, even if you have shorts. So I think it's someone who believes in you and someone who's interested in movies as well. And they, and they also have money, but they're interested in movies and, and being part of that experience of a, of a movie being made, uh, which Kendall was very involved. He actually played a role in the film as well. Oh, nice. Because uh, we made him, because he was perfect for a role. It's like, you have to be in it. Uh, so we put him in it, but it was like a very like uh, homegrown, like tight, love, very low budget, small crew passion project, but it turned out really well. And we finished it and it got distributed in the US, but also got distributed overseas 
around the world. So it was like for a first time film that we did on such a micro budget, it was like very uh, successful experience. And it kind of led into the next two kind of pretty rapidly, but it kind of kept going a little bit. And then the markets and everything changed a bit. And then you kind of had to learn how to ride that. Now it's like, I think um, in some ways it's easier to make a feature film because of the digital revolution and, and uh, you can do things now on your home computer. Uh, you can get access to cameras that can shoot. And if you have the right DP and knows how to light it uh, and that with the right expertise, it can look really, really good. Uh, so in that sense, it's, it's, it, it can bring down the cost. But on the flip side, it's much more challenging, I think, in terms of distribution, in terms of distribution where you make money. Now, in terms of distribution where you just get it out there, obviously there's a million ways to do that now. But in terms of like making it go out there where you can make money so you can you know get your uh, cast and paid and your crew paid and everything else, or if you're paying them up front by the budget so you can get your investors' money back, it's much more challenging, I think, now. So it's kind of an interesting change. And before it was like much more difficult and more expensive to make the movie, but what, if you could make the movie, distribution is much better. Now it's much easier to maybe make the movie, but distribution is much harder. So it's kind of been the slow change <laughs> that we've seen over the course of making the five films. So it's, it's interesting. And do you think that's because sort of the collapse of the DVD market? I think part of it is the collapse of the DVD market in the sense there aren't video stores anymore. And video stores kind of was this weird, great equalizer because your movie would be sitting on the shelf right next to a multi-million dollar Hollywood movie and you'd be on the same shelf in the new releases. And if your cover was good, someone might pick it up and read the back and if the, the story sounded interesting and stuff, they may rent that movie and, and check it out. So it was a way of people finding out about your movie in the new release section of video stores in a very tactile way. Now, of course, you have it in VOD but they're little tiny little croutons and, and lots of times now placement is based more on the distributor and who has the muscle to get the better placement on the platforms and there's all those things. And, and that makes it more challenging now that it's more of a digital world as opposed to physical media. And also uh, actually I think it's more challenging in terms of because of piracy. And, and the biggest reason that's a challenge is world sales is more difficult now because once your movie comes out anywhere, the movie will immediately be pirated. And all those countries know that the movie will be pirated. And it used to be, there was a very big physical separation between the different countries. So you would sell your movie in your different territories and everything was very separated. It's still separated now, but the issue is because of piracy, it breaks through all those borders. So it makes it much more difficult for uh, buyers in those countries to pay you more money because they know there's also going to be a pirated version around because it just will. I mean, it just will happen. So I think that's made it, I think that's one of the reasons it's more challenging in terms of distribution. And yes, it goes back to what you're saying with DVDs because it was a physical thing. It was a little harder to pirate. I mean, still piracy in physical DVDs and, and, and Blu-ray, you know, but it was harder because it was a physical tactile object. And a lot of people like to have the good art and the you know, the di good disc with the image on the disc, and it was something people like to own and have. And now that it's going to the digital realm, it's, it's changing, it's a different thing. What about the distribution deals? Were they much more in favor of the filmmaker before, or it's always been sort of a rocky? I, I think they, 
they've never been really in favor of the filmmaker ever, unless you get to a certain point where you have certain clout or power. It's, it's, it, but I think the, the difference is because there's like less and less money coming into the pot. So it's still getting, it would still like get siphoned to this little amount you would give it because less is pouring in. So that amount is, is smaller. You know what I mean? I think it, it's always like distributors, you know, they, they, especially in the, we're talking about the indie side, obviously it's very different than a big Hollywood movie. But on the indie side, uh, the distributor would take less of the risk and they don't really want to spend much money marketing the movie and, and they make you pay to deliver everything to them. That's on you to pay everything and give them everything they need. So if it sells for them, great. If it doesn't sell really well, it's not really that much skin off their teeth because they're still going to make a little bit of money. Um, so it, in a way, it becomes more of a challenge to, to, to the filmmaker because uh, before there would be a little bit more of a distribution cost. So you could get maybe a little bit more marketing from the distributor. And it depends on the distributor too. And like we talked about earlier, it's easy to make a movie now. And because of that, there's a lot more movies. Now, a lot of the movies aren't good, but but they exist. And so and then you can put a nice piece of cover art on it and, and stuff and, and and it looks like a movie until maybe you watch it and it's not that good. Uh, but it clutters the market. And so there's more of that and, and people are willing to sell those sometimes like for nothing and which, you know. So it's like all that kind of, it's, it's, it's difficult. It's always been hard, I think. It's just difficult. It's kind of like what's happening with the music industry for a long time with the same exact thing when you started not selling CDs and records anymore as much and more digital and then it's streaming and then there's less money coming from streaming because people aren't buying the movie a la carte, they're paying for a service. And so it's the same thing that kind of happened to music has been happening, you know, last four or five years more with movies. So it's the same challenging market, I think. So with making your first feature film, because it was a passion project, you had this great investor, he was in the film, did that in some ways spoil your expectations? <laughs> because then it was such a wonderful experience and it, whether it was difficult or not, it, it got made and, and you had a, a good relationship with the person. Yeah. But then subsequent movies you thought were going to be that easy and they weren't, I, I don't know, I'm just assuming. I think every movie, has like it's, it's like going to war and it has its own unique challenges so it's like it's always different and the challenges are always different but it's never easy even though we had a great experience with the with the first film in terms of kendall and, and him being an investor it was still very little money and it was very grueling shoot over the course of a year and it was very tough i mean physically it was like it was really brutal uh thinking how we survived that shoot so that that was the challenge on that one and then other ones, you, you know, maybe you you have more money. It's a little bit of an easier shoot, but then maybe your challenge is because of you're you're dealing with a SAG or you're dealing with a, a union type situation or you're dealing with a distribution challenge or something or a location challenge. It's like saying so I think it varies from every movie. It's just different. There's but it's always challenging. I think any any indie filmmaking, whatever the genre, I think is is challenging. But I mean, in terms of your personal view on how easy it was going to be, did that one sort of? No, I don't want to say spoil it because that sounds too negative. But did it? Did it? Did you? Did you have rose-colored glasses on for the longest time, thinking that I can do? We, we can do another one, and it's going to, 
yes, it'll be difficult and I might have to drive five hours and I have to work another job. And it sounds, that sounds draining to me, just hearing about that. But, but in terms of actually getting investors and making things work, it actually wasn't that easy. That one was like a special, all the stars were aligned or whatever. Well, that one was really special. Uh, I'm trying to think. Like personally, did you, did you think that everything was going to be that easy? And then well, and it's weird because it didn't feel easy. It didn't feel easy. Okay, it, it doesn't it didn't sound feel easy. easy. So, actually, kind of was always hoping it to get a little easier. Uh, our second film we also did with that investor, uh, oh, and that okay. was Ghost of the Needle, and um, and that was another great experience. Actually, production experience was actually really, really, really positive uh, on that on that film. It had a little bit bigger budget. But then on the flip of it, we, and we also had a really good foreign sales experience uh, from that film, but we had a very negative North American distribution experience from it. So it started out feeling really, really good, and then it became kind of painful oh. in, in the end because of distribution, even though, like I said, overseas, it was great. It came out in so many countries and did really good overseas. So it's always it always feels like you're you're in a challenge where it's like if this works out then you have a problem here that works out there's a problem there and uh, you know you just kind of have to roll with it knowing that there's going to be these challenges coming you don't know what they are sometimes you just plan really really hard and try to eliminate all the problems you possibly can but know you just know that things are going to pop up and then you just have to deal with them so as they as they come I think our 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 probably our our I mean, Echoes of Fear is our new one still in the festivals, and it won't come out till like fall 2019, so I don't know what's gonna happen. Uh, but that was a great experience making it. It was a really great experience making the movie. But in terms of the distribution process, the only one that's been, that kind of went through the full cycle that was really a uh, great experience for us was, was Dark Remains, which is a different group of investors. Uh, Tony Click, and I can't remember the other guy, David, uh, can't remember his last name. But, um, but that was a great experience, uh, making uh, Darker Mains. And that worked, you know, that sold nicely in the U.S. and overseas. And it got a new life on VOD. It got picked up uh, later when VOD became a more, a better market. It got re, re kind of re-released on, on the VOD platforms and the streaming. And it's, so it's been, that's been a, probably our most positive experience going through distribution. Hopefully, Echoes of Fear, our new one, we'll see what happens. But uh, I mean, the, the film, the response from the audience has been great to the film. And it's been doing an amazing, I mean, our biggest success in terms of festivals, because it's won five Best Feature Awards. It's already done eight festivals. Um, I think it's going to be in four or five uh, before it ends it, at least before it ends its festival run. And the audience response has been amazing. So obviously we have high hopes how that one's going to uh, turn out. But, you know, you never know. You just, you just get it out there, make the best film you can, and then you work hard to market and release it and see what happens. Would you say you're an optimist? I'm a realist. Uh, but I think you have to have a little bit of insane optimism to make an indie film. Uh, because if you're really a realist, you probably would look at making an indie film and just go, no. <laughs> and you would stop. <laughs> so even though you're, you're, you're realistically, you know what to expect, you have to kind of like have the optimism or the belief or it kind of boils down to you have to make it. It's like you, you've got the story you really want to tell. Uh, my wife and I, you know, we tell these stories together and then eventually there's a point where it's like we really want to tell the story. So we got to make it happen. And then you just, so in that sense, it's optimism, yes. 
because you just have to go, we're going to do it. And then you kind of dive in and do it. Were you always this, were you always this way or after making many short films and then features, then you realize like, this is kind of the attitude I need to adopt. I need to be like a, a happy realist. <laughs> I don't know if it's happy, but uh, I, I think it really comes from uh, Laurence Lowe, my wife, filmmaking partner. I think it really comes from her. Uh, she's very much into like, you have to find your own path in what you're doing creatively, not worry about what other people are doing, not look at other people's success or in lack of success and think about that. You just have to, excuse me, you have to follow your path, you know, believe in what you believe in and, and, and then just do it. Uh, and so I, I take great inspiration really from her because she's very much like, even from going back to the first film, I'm like, oh, I really want to make a feature film. I'm not sure how. Uh, and she's like, well, just do it. <laughs> and, you know, and, and she was, she's always been like that in terms of just finding a way to make it happen. Um, so I think, I think probably from her, from her. Where does a movie begin for you? I think for me, a movie really begins uh, with an idea or the story, the key story element, or, or the what if. Like this is kind of like a thought. Um, and sometimes like uh, Lowe will bring, you know, will have an idea or have a dream uh, and say, oh, this is really great. And like, I always jot it down. Like I jot down her ideas and, and her dreams and my dreams when I have an idea or a thought I wake up from. Or if I'm daydreaming and, and, and like, oh, you know. So I kind of try to write all those little thoughts down. And then eventually what I find happens is there's some of those ones that get written down. There's one that kind of keeps chirping. Keep like, hey. And like, and like more ideas come to it. And at a certain point it reaches critical mass. I mean, usually when I have like 10 or 12 pages of ideas relating to a particular story, it kind of reaches the critical mass where I start going, okay, now we're going to figure out the, you know, what this is, is a real script. You know, all these ideas are great. And then figuring out how it coalesces into the script. And then it kind of evolves. Like I, I work with Lo, like ever, you know, when I finish the first draft is very useful because she usually gets fresh eyes on it at that point. So it's great to get like a fresh perspective. And then the story grows. And then of course, as you are inspired by locations or, or real things you experience. And oftentimes when you, as it progresses, like when you start casting, like an actor can be a huge like influence in terms of like, oh, this person is like changes that character. This can make the movie turn into this. So all those things kind of, and it just kind of grows. Oh, it's fun. So it's my, probably my favorite part is like developing the story. And once that happens, once that chirping is so loud, then how do you bring it to life? How do you know that it's time to start casting, that this is like, this is something worth spending time writing a script on? Well, it's funny. It's like sometimes I, I, I don't know until after I've written the script. I mean, I, I've written, I have this giant bin of scripts. <laughs> but sometimes, <laughs> I'll, sometimes I'll finish the first draft of a script and, and I'll feel like, okay, well, that's good for now. I finish this first draft and there it is. And I read it and go, mm, okay, this is interesting, but not right now. And it'll go in the bin. Uh, so sometimes I just in the process of writing the first draft, but then if I finish the first draft and Lo looks at it and I look at it and go, hmm, there's something here, then it might lead to the second draft, the third draft, the fourth draft. At a certain point, the story gets to a point where you're like, yes, this, this story is here. It's like, this is a really, really good story and we should, we should really make it. And at that point, it kind of like, then it kind of moves into the pre-production phase or like, or the phase of like, well, how can we actually make it happen? You know? 
So writing a script is almost like a safety valve in some sense, because if you see that first draft and you're like, eh, okay, I did it. I'm not right. like totally wild about it. Imagine you spend two, three years trying to, you know, get it made, right. raise money, get distribution, right. all that. Well, that's what it really boils down to because it's so hard as an indie filmmaker to make a movie. It has to be one that you kind of like are insane to make because the journey is gonna be so difficult. So it has to be an idea that can really stand that test of time, that you can live with it for that time. To not only make it, but then you gotta do the festival circuit, and then you gotta get the distributor, and then once the distributor takes it, you gotta work on the marketing of it to help the distributor out so people know the movie exists. So it's a very long process. It usually ends up being a three to five year process when you go through the whole cycle. So it better, it needs to be an idea that you feel really, really, really strongly about. Um, it's interesting because if I was in a position probably to snap my fingers, a lot of these other scripts and ideas, I, I probably would love to see into fruition if I knew it could be a shorter cycle. And I think they could actually be really, really good stories that'd be entertaining and people would enjoy. But the trick is, because there's only so much you can do, you kind of have to pick the one that kind of leaps to the top, like me, you know, you, must, <laughs> you know you've got a, you got a new me. And that's kind of, you know, it seems like there's always one which will float to, to the top like that. And also it's, realistically, it's, it's money and budget. It's like, I have ideas all the time. I can't make into uh, a feature film right now because it's too much money. I can't raise it. Uh, you go through the process of trying to shop it to people and get a producer involved and you go through that process, but you know that on our own, we can't do it. It would need someone else involved, which we'd love to do. And we have several of those that we, you know, hope, hopefully one day will happen. But that's kind of on a different track than the ones that you do as just a straight up indie filmmaker, because that's a little bit more out of control because you're dependent, excuse me, on some different people saying yes. So it's like, you, you know, it's like, that's not completely in your control. Whereas the ones that you know that no matter what you can do, if you set your mind to it, those kind of move to the top as well, because nothing can stop you as long as you decide to do it. You know, that's the only thing that would stop you from doing it is a decision like, yes, I'm doing this one. How long should it take for you to write the first draft of a screenplay? Like what's your typical turnaround time for the first draft? Oh, it's interesting because usually the way I write a script is I'm usually working on another finishing the previous movie. So what I tend to do is I tend to use a certain amount of my free time on developing the story and jotting down ideas. And I can spend a long time jotting down ideas while I'm working on something else. And then once it reaches critical mass and there's enough ideas jotted down, then it's just a matter of me going, yes, I'm gonna write that into a script and finding the time to do it. And I can usually buckle down at that point after having spent all that time with the ideas and developing the characters are there and I know the basic plot, I know the basic set pieces, all that's been you know slowly accumulated over months and months while doing something else. The first draft can happen really fast. First draft can be done in, in, in a couple of weeks, if that's all I'm doing. If I'm able to have a couple of weeks straight, well, all I can do is to sit down and write, you know, 10 or 12 hours a day, boom, you can do the first draft. But the first draft is, that's just the start of the process. The first draft is kind of like just you taking all those notes and putting it into a form where you go, ah, it's a script. And then at that point, then you can really start, I, I show it to low. Laurence and, and, and she looks at it and we can start the process of like figuring out what, what seems to be working, what, what scenes are great, well, there should be more scenes like that. This, this scene, it's like, 
Obviously, she won't be mad if I say it, but sometimes she'll, so like early on, I would write a script and she would like, I, I love the first, the first initial notes on the first draft are fantastic. And sometimes there'll be like giant X's on a page, like boring, you know, but it's great because it basically, you're getting those outside eyes to know like what's engaging, what's capturing you. And then the other part of it is of course on the drafts is like shrinking everything down, everything to its core essence. Uh, so you don't have any repetition in terms of scenes, repetition in terms of locations or, or characters doing the same thing. It kind of like, for me, what I've learned over the years is you basically like, what's the latest you can get into a scene and the earliest you can get out? You know, it's like, how and how can you make that work and flow? Uh, and from an editing standpoint, and also Lowe as a, as a shooter and cinematographer, like we spent a lot of time, um, a lot of time with Echoes of Fear, our last one when we were doing the different scripts, was figuring out like, um, you know, how we can make that flow really nicely. Whereas the beginning of the movie, we pass through about two and a half weeks of time in the first 20 minutes of the movie, we go through about two and a half weeks. And we have a lot of like short scenes, like actually if you clock them, there are like scenes that are 25 seconds. So a lot of it was like dovetail, figuring out in the script stage, like how to dovetail the audio, hit the scene and have everything still flow. So even though you have all these like really, really short scenes and you're passing time, and you're going, you know, in as late as you can and out as early as you can, but you, you can't be like disjointed. Everything has to flow in terms of the visual and the edit. And that, that first starts with working that out in the script. And then of course, when you get into the post, you, some, you, know, you push that even further, but it has to start in the script stage. You know, it has to be thought out that way in the beginning. So you know, like these are the moments in the scene which will bridge us and in visually into the next scene and stuff. So it's exciting to me. It's like, that's, I mean, I love the process of doing the multiple drafts on a script and, and honing it. And to me, like honing the story is, is the most fun. The most daunting is probably like getting all those initial ideas together and getting through that first draft. Because once you have that, then you, you can just play on all the different versions and just keep making it better. The same way, like when you finish the movie, you keep editing it to make it better. You keep, you know, you finish your first version, which is your script, and then like forget the script. Now we got this, and then you start letting the movie tell you what it wants to be and start playing and edit to like figure out how to even make it tighter and better and take it to the next step in the editing room. So, and then of course, music and sound design—that's really the icing on the cake when you get to get to that level. You think your experience as an editor has really helped with the storytelling? I think so, because even when I started, um, like by the time I was doing my second or third short, so I guess by the time I was like 12 years old, I was editing at that point. I was shooting Super 8. Uh, and believe me, when you shoot uh, and edit Super 8 and you are physically cutting the film and then having to tape it back together, you think about what you're editing because, because it's like that is a process. So you really are editing in your head because it was difficult. You edit in your head. So as a kid, I was like, you already started editing in your head because of the difficulty of splicing that Super 8 film and putting it together. So I kind of like learned that and internalized that. And then what you learn is what you start doing is you start editing in your head before you even shoot. So before you even shoot anything, you're storyboarding. And you're storyboarding it out from the edit in your head and in that, in that, so it's like you're editing even from the very beginning. Of course, that changes. 
because things on the set and it's very organic and things may change from your storyboards and they may change from the edit in your head when you actually get into physically, truly editing what you shot. But I think you're just always editing. I think, and the same with writing. In the same way, when you're writing, you're editing. You're editing the scene to figure out how to make it shorter or tighter and the words. And do, do they need to say all those words? Do they need to say any words? You know, is, is it, can this just be expressed by an expression? So it may start out in your first draft, it's a paragraph speech from someone which turns into maybe three words. So in a way, it's like, I think editing is the essence of telling a story. Is, is, is editing, whether it be like editing in your writing or editing in your head when you're storyboarding before you shoot or truly the editing, what's called editing when you're editing your, your finished product. So even if I reached a point where I would be using another editor, which I would not be against at all in terms of the physical editing, I still think the process would be a lot of editing would be going on in my head, uh, you know. So yeah, I think it's just like a key element for me is seeing, I see it visually. And that's how I got into making uh, movies to begin with, as opposed to like doing short story writing or writing novels as much, is that I, 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 I see it in my head. This is how the story comes to me. So in a way, even when I'm writing the script, I'm watching it in my head. Sometimes I wish you could just jack a little cable into your brain. <laughs> You know, it'd be, it'd be pretty awesome. Maybe one day that's going to happen. Everyone's going to be able to do their own movies because they're going to be able to do it. But then you're out there really think about it, I guess, or your, your, your movie would be pretty jumbled. But uh, yeah. Like charging an electric car? Yeah, yeah. But then sometimes that's the challenge is you see it in your head. And, in, and on an independent level, when you're fighting with your budget, it can be very challenging and frustrating because you have this movie in your head and you're trying to get to that. It wasn't until we did Echoes of Fear, for the first time, I felt like I got something better than what was in my head. And to me, I definitely think it's the best film we've done, Lo and I have done together. And, uh, and it was such an amazing feeling to watch the finished movie and go, that's better than what I edited in my head oh, before great. I did it. And it made me so happy. Because usually the other movies I would watch, and I was like happy with Dark Remains, our third movie, because I felt like I got 80% of what was in my head. And I was like, oh wow, this is an amazing accomplishment. I got 80% what I saw in my head. So to actually get something better than I saw in my head really made me feel like, okay, we finally, we finally got it. <laughs> we finally figured it out. So it's pretty nice. Well, plus you hear so many filmmakers say, it wasn't the movie I thought I was gonna make. Like it, it, it got away from me once we got right. in the edit room. It wasn't, it was still, I'm still happy with it or whatever, but it wasn't the movie I want. You know, because yeah. we have this fantasy of how we want yeah. something to turn out. Right. And then you're dealing with so many elements on right. set. Right. And things just get away. Right. And so that's Well, the real magic is when you can, like what happened with us with Echoes of Fear, the real magic is when the movie takes on a life of its own and becomes something better than what was in your head. And that, I feel like, is when you finally break through the wall is when that happens. And I think the really great movies, that's when the magic happens, is when it actually becomes something beyond. It's like you, you just reach a point where all the elements come together and it goes a step beyond what you even had imagined. And then I, I feel like then, to me that's like, to me it's like the really rewarding experience. Because otherwise you're just chasing what's in your head and it can become very frustrating. I mean, I guess unless you're, 
David Lynch have a hundred million dollars and and by golly you'll get what's in your head, you know, because you've got the resources and money to do it. But you know, there's probably ten directors in the world who can actually, you know, have the resources to be able to truly do no matter what to accomplish their vision. It's very difficult. I'm sure even if you ask some of those those directors, they would probably maybe who knows say well. It sort of is, but you know how, how everyone's critical of their own work. Right, right. Yeah, you know, they no, notice right. something right. that you're we right. would never even notice. You're right. You're right. Uh, you know, sound of a footstep that they thought wasn't. Yeah. You know, but there are a lot of people like I, I bet you like Martin Scorsese doesn't stop editing a movie until Martin Scorsese decides it's he's ready to stop editing. <laughs> oh sure, sure, yeah. But <laughs> this was great about it. I yeah, mean, it's like yeah. when you can reach a level to have that level of talent and be able to be recognized so you get the resources because people respect your talent and your vision. That's a truly amazing thing. That's true. But then there's new pressure. Yes, of course. Of because course, then course, now, if for whatever reason, some critic who's never made a, a film before right, decides right. to trash it right. and, and tell you how it's all wrong, then... Right, right. So... Yeah, true. But that's another video. <laughs> <laughs> of all the different scripts that you have in like this bin, yeah, I don't know if it's a real bin. It but, a oh, real it's a real. Oh, wow. Okay, I thought it was a, a real, metaphorical. I like bin. to have tactile paper, so <laughs> okay. yes, it's a real bin of scripts. Okay, um, have there been any that you want to make, but the budget isn't there, and it wouldn't do it justice to do it on an, uh, an indie budget? Yes, there, there's like three that have floated to the top of that that uh, I very much like to do. Um, the process of working that would involve some other people uh, to make that work. One is a, a science fiction uh, kind of apocalyptic creature movie. Uh, one of them is a very intense psychological horror movie uh, with the female protagonist uh, or slash antagonist, depending on how you look at it. Uh, but then another one I, uh, that I really wanted to do was um, uh, a comedy uh, horror creature uh, film, which I really was, Really, it tried really hard to like crunch numbers to figure out like how could we creatively do it, but it still was too much. But we actually came up with a creative way of, of telling that story in a different medium. Uh, so, uh, Low uh, Laurence came up with the idea. Uh, I said, Well, like, well, I want to do like maybe I could adapt the script into like a fun, a fun uh, text, and then we could have a picture every three or four pages to, to make it visual and keep it fun. Uh, and then, uh, and then she came up with the idea of like, well, no, no, she was like, a, we should do a picture per per page of text. So like every page you have text, and then you have a cool picture on the other side. And I'm like, oh, it's great. So it was a way of us keeping the visual nature of it, um, be able to tell to still have images uh, while also being able to do, uh, you know, have the text and tell the story, yet not be limited uh, by the budget of like if you were trying to tell it into a movie. And that's, this is an early prototype book of it called oh, wow. Innards. How cool. Um, which, it, it's very early prototype. Uh, we have uh, amazing artist, um, Armando Norte, who did the uh, illustrations for it. So there's 106 illustrations for the novella. So like, once again, a, a picture for every, every, every page. Uh, Lo is actually doing the uh, coloring and in a weird way, the lighting on the black and white illustrations. And she also just came up with the other day, it's really exciting, she just came up with the idea because we were trying to figure out how to make the text work with the image and keep it visual as well. And she came up with the great idea that the text is actually gonna be hand printed as well to go along. 
So the text, even though it's on the right side, it's text, it's gonna be handwritten and hand-drawn. And it's very creative in terms of like how the, uh, how the text is done. And that was always, even when it was typed, it was done that way. So like in terms of the words that come out and the layout of the page and stuff, it's very different. So it's a really unique, I'm really excited about it because it's very unique because it's, we call it an illustrated novella. It's not a comic book, but it's definitely not a novella with a few illustrations. So it's, it's living in this interesting in-between world between the two. So it's very unique, uh, but it really, it just suited the story really well because it was a comedy story. Uh, the comedy comes from the characters in the very bizarre situation uh, So with the creature. So because it was comedy, it just really lend itself to doing it with this fun text style with the, uh, with the images and, and a very uh, interesting graphic images to go with it. It really lended itself to being able to tell it in this way. So that's something we're gonna turn to after Echoes of Fear, our last feature comes out uh, fall of 2019. Hopefully everything works out on that. Uh, we're gonna start turning our attention to that. Lowe's currently finishing the coloring and lighting on it. So yeah, so that's, that's entered. So how, plug, long plug. Was, how long was the script? Oh, the script was a full feature script. Um, like I'm trying to remember pages. like how many script pages. I think it was like 98 script pages. Okay. Uh, but you know, of course it's, it's not the script. I, I had to like uh, go back to my creative writing origins and, and you know, convert the script into a story. But the great thing was because of the illustrations, I could keep the story really simple and fun in terms of this text part because the, the illustration of page kind of gives you a lot of the details that you would have to do if you were just oh. writing the story. You'd have to, well, what does the main character look like? You'd have to describe it. You'd have to describe the creature really well and, and the location. So basically by having the image of page, it enables you to kind of get more into the meat and the fun of the story in terms of the dialogue in the key events and action. You, you can kind of jump right to that in the text because the picture is kind of helping you along, helping the, the reader uh, or viewer along in terms of what, what it looks like visually. So that's why it's a fun, a really fun marriage. And that's where it comes in a little bit heading into your comic book realm a little bit. Uh, but a lot more text than a comic book where it comes back into your novella world. So it's in that nice in between space that we kind of created. <laughs> We know adaptations are common, but how common is it for a script to then be turned into a novella or a novel, whatever? You know, I think it happens from time to time. A lot of times it happens because people will do it um, to try to sell the script uh, and the story, which I, of course, would not be against if that ended up happening once the illustrated, uh, you know, Anders the illustrated novella came out, if it helped it turn into a movie, great. But our key goal was in doing it to make it a very, like, its own project. So if it doesn't, if it leads to the movie, great. If it doesn't lead to a movie, it's okay because it, it, it exists in this, in its own way, you know, in this form that people can enjoy it and, and get the story. And, and once again, a way of someone experiencing the story uh, that you can't get, you can't like hand someone a script. You know, it's like, it's like handing someone who's not an architect the blueprints of a house. It's not a very satisfying way to experience a story. You know, scripts aren't meant to be the end result. I mean, scripts are always a step, like the movements of a house, to turn into a house, to turn into a movie. So, to, so this was fun with this is this basically, you know, adapting it in such a way that it's complete 
in and of itself. That's really so cool. We're very excited. Very cool we'll get it done this year for sure, and then we'll figure out uh, like how to get it out there. That'll be a whole new distribution world because we've never done well, <laughs> we've never done distribution of a book for novellas. So I don't know. Is this, oh, you don't know? So you we you, have to learn because it's the first time we've ever done this. I mean, I mean, our all of our experience from doing um, movies doesn't really lend itself to what we're going to do with this novella. So that'll be something new we'll have to learn in terms of distribution and marketing and, and, and you know, what the best way is for to get it out there to people. Where did you actually get the book made? Uh, it's a beautiful book. You want to hold it up oh, again. Oh, yeah, sure. It's absolutely gorgeous. Um, where did you actually get the, once you had the artist attached and mm -hmm. you were finished with your text, where did you actually get it put together, the book, the bounding? Well, this, this is just the prototype of it. Uh, we wanted to do it, uh, Lo found a place to have it printed. Uh, so we could basically have a proof of concept for ourselves because uh, this was early on before the text was was handwritten So the text is just typed, but we just wanted to get a sense and the images are still black and white And a lot of them weren't in their complete stage yet But we just wanted to get a sense of like well How would it work in terms of reading it and experiencing it getting your image per page? You know and so how would that feel and how would it work? And so it was kind of like a proof of concept for us to be able to hold it in our hands and read it and uh, you know we made a lot of changes from this because this was a great way of us kind of it's almost like a rough draft or a first cut of a movie it is a great way to kind of get a layout of like oh okay so this is where it's heading and how can we make it better and from this we realized that like to really make it pop and for the comedy to come through it was it was important to do the color and then uh, Lo actually uh, experimented and learned how to do the coloring on it, and she's a DP, so it's weird. It's like you actually add lighting when you add color. So in an interesting way, you're almost like adding color and lighting it, and it helped bring out uh, the artist of Mondo Norte, and it helped really bring his illustrations out. You could really see the line work he did and everything. It helped, like, it helped the viewer be able to see that better, and like see all that detail work they did on it. And uh, and like I said, and just uh, uh, recently, we we learned from doing all that that she came up with the idea of doing the text in a hand-drawn manner to once again helping with the comedy and the flow of it and, and complementing the illustration. So we're very excited how it's going to turn out. Yeah, it'd be interesting. Imagine like it's such a hit that they want a second one, but they don't want to turn it into a movie. They actually like it in novella form and that's it becomes great. like its own series. Well, that's great. Kind of cool. I mean, we every time we do a creative project, we're like, we try not to think about what it's going to, who knows what it's going to lead to. So we try to be open. You know, we like finish it and, and see where it goes and see what opportunities it opens up for, whether it's a movie, what opportunity it opens up for another movie. If, if it's this, you know, if it opens up an opportunity to tell another story this way, I mean, it'd be interesting. So I think for us, it's like finding the right avenue um, to tell the story, you know, what it lends itself to, you know, to tell it. Did you go to bookstores, the few that are left, and, and try to see, I mean... <laughs> Sorry, the, the few wonderful bookstores that are left, did you go to them and try to see what other novellas in the horror section just to get an idea since this was a new realm for them? Well, yes, we actually dropped into uh, an amazing um, horror shop uh, called Dark Delicacies. Oh, uh, okay. and they, uh, in Burbank? Sorry? Uh, yes, oh, okay. yes, mm -hmm. yes. Uh, and um, it was interesting because uh, the proprietor of that, Dell, he uh, is an author himself. And he's very aware of everything that's out there in publishing, especially in the horror genre realm. And it basically, there wasn't, there, it, it, it's kind of unique. There isn't anything exactly like this. There's, 
some things with an image, um, but um, it's like every three or four pages, or it, it's not balanced the same. We did see like a, a book that was done there, I can't remember the name of it, later, after we kind of done the prototype and, and mapped it out, where they did kind of have an image and, and, and with, with text per page, but it was different. It, was, it wasn't a novella as much, it was almost like poetry in a way. So, so it, it's like we haven't really seen anything exactly like this, which to us is exciting. We've heard other people say, well, that's not good, because <laughs> it doesn't fall into like a little niche. Like, oh, it's that type, it's this, it's that. But to me, it's exciting, it's different. Well, remember you Shel know? Silverstein? Like, did his thing, you know, remember Shel Silverstein, the writer? Like, no. oh, okay, he did kind of like these cool, like, poems, and then there would be these drawings, and I mean, I'm dating myself, I think that's like a Bay Area. No, okay, I mean, he was okay. worldwide, I know, but he, it, so he kind of, I don't know. Well, when I was a kid, like, the poet, <laughs> the poet that really impressed me uh, in terms of what he did visually was E.E. E. Cummings and how he laid out his uh, poetry actually uh, really affected me a lot. I actually, you know, a long time ago did some poetry and I would kind of like, it was a, I kind of fell into a similar thing where I would visually kind of move the words around in a different creative way, which when it got adapted into this novella, that same thing kind of came through, even though I hadn't done it since, I don't know, college, I guess. But, but the same thing would happen where like I would bring words up and words would be big and move things on the page different. And uh, so that's why it's like it's different. Even in the text side of it, it's not just like a normal text where it's like line, 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 paragraph. You know, it has its own, uh, its own uh, rhythm and style in terms of that as well, which will be brought out even more. That's going to be the text is now the text is going to be done by hand by low. It's going to make that even more pronounced. So I'm very excited. Were you, you were a poet in Tennessee in high school? That was that. sounds so How was that? awful. <laughs> I, I Do you have any like-minded people? I filled books with my poetry, uh, which no one has ever no one has ever seen them except for uh, very good friends and, and Laurence obviously Lois has seen has seen some of them. But uh, but yeah, it was just for me. Yeah. Uh, it was it was a way I would let out creative outlet uh, steam when I couldn't make a movie. I would ah. use that as an outlet. Uh, that's before I became, I would write scripts so much. Once I started writing scripts a lot more, I kind of like, kind of stopped doing that and became much, much more just writing scripts as an outlet. Now because of this, I'm kind of, it's weird. I'm dovetailing back into that a little bit. But, uh, but for me, it's like the key is whatever we do, I just want it to be entertaining because it's like, I do this even though it, it, it's very personal and it's stories we're interested in. To me, it's like it's also stories that should interest other people because it, it's done for other people to see and have fun with. Uh, even when we do the scary uh, supernatural horror movies, they're for, it's fun. You know, it's scary. I mean, it's good to have a it's fun to have a good scare and and tell a, a creepy, scary suspense horror story. So everything we do is kind of like focused on it being entertaining. Which is why I get scared to see the word poetry. That's why the, that poetry does not exist in little books I hand out. It's just for me, uh, because I don't. I don't think it would re those things would be really entertaining for someone else. It's more like something I would do creatively, but it's not something designed for the outside world. Because I don't for think sure. other people would find it entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> do you have tips for writing twists and turns in a screenplay to really keep that audience guessing? 
so that it's a movie where you would want to see it because you can't figure it out. If you go in cold, you're not going to be able to figure it out. Well, I think the, the, the best tip on that, I think, is if the story is coming from your imagination and or from what you're inspired by from real life or what you're inspired by that's not from another movie, that will be like a great, that would naturally make it be less predictable. If you're not copying a movie you've seen or, or thinking about, well, what did other movies do when they did this? Um, if, you're, if, you're, if you're just bringing the story from imagination and, 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 and playing with it that way, I think that's a, that inherently already right from the beginning will help you do things that are unpredictable because you're not basing it on something that's already been done. I think the, the trap you can fall into is, is like, there was a trope with slasher movies, which I, I love a good slasher movie, but there's a trope in the 80s that became a, a parody and a joke where people, they would do fake jump scares where people would open a closet and the cat would jump out. And it would be like this joke in a while, like how long has this cat been trapped in this closet? <laughs> so we could like jump out and, and scare. But, it, but it's funny because even, you know, in Alien, there's a scene where the locker gets opened and the cat jumps out and it's a fake jump scare. But it's perfect in Alien and it's handled beautifully. But, uh, it, it, you know, it's like, but then everyone's like, oh, the, the cat jump scare became like this. It became a joke, as it should be, because it, and then it became used in parodies, which is great, using it in a parody. But uh, so I think that a lot of it has to do with just not doing what's been done before. Um, and, you know, you can always try to, like, attack that more intellectually if you're aware of having seen a bunch of horror movies by just deliberately making sure you don't do what's already been done. Uh, or if, if you know that's been done, you, you, you make sure if, if your story naturally has something similar that you figure out a way to make sure it goes in a different direction so you don't go the direction that usually goes into. Which, and that's something we worked um, really hard with, with uh, Echoes of Fear, there's a, a very big turn in the in, in the end of the second act into the third act, which is very organic to the story, uh, but it but it's a very big turn in the story, which a lot of people are really responding to from the festival place. The festival audience is really responding to that because once again, it takes it in a direction um, that you're not expecting from how you're watching the movie, and you, and you think it's following this path of the way this type of movie it is, but then it goes in a completely different way. Um, but, but once again, that came from the fact that uh, the first part of the movie was inspired by real events, so we drew from that. And the other stuff came from um, true events and true stories that we heard about, so we incorporated that into the story and, and segued that in. And that's what made it unique, uh, because it wasn't following like a, a formula or a particular pattern, or wasn't even obeying the rules of just falling neatly into a particular subgenre. It kind of added a subgenre. Uh, as it got to the, uh, as it got into heading into the third act, and there's been a great response from that. So I, I definitely think that it's always good, no matter what story or genre, if if you can, you know, think outside the box in terms of like, just based on how you come up with your story, it'll happen naturally, as long as you're not copying things. I think, and then if you feel like your story is naturally falling into being too similar to something, then you can work actively against it. You can you can like decide like to actively like make sure you do the left turn when everyone else does the right turn, 
if you have to. If it just happens that like it feels like it's getting too close to something, you can intellectually decide to do that. But I think it works best when it's organic, when you're coming up with a story. It kind of works best when it just the story evolves and naturally those twists and turns happen because of the story. It's always best if it can just happen as you develop the story naturally, I think. Did you ever catch yourself in the beginning like, you know what, this is way too similar to this one scene in a Brian De Palma movie. I can't do this. This is too much like out. Did you ever see, because I think it's natural for writers as right, well. Right. You're going to emulate those that you're, you're watching, you're, you're, you're reading, and then you realize, oh wait, I'm becoming that voice that's not original. I know it's kind of hard to see, especially if it's your, your own. Yeah, way. yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think. Um, I think it was a trap it was easier to fall into initially when I was writing um, the scripts that didn't even get made um, before, even before we even did our first feature. Um, I feel like I pretty much actively fight against it. I know that definitely when we come to orchestrating suspense uh, and tension, and especially uh, a scare, earning that scare organically and naturally, not using the tropes that are you overused and doing the same. And that might be an example of kind of like actively working to turn left instead of right, you know, actively working to not do the thing that, that's usually done, both in terms of sound design, in terms of music, in terms of like the build uh, to that moment, to like to execute it differently. What makes a good horror protagonist? A good horror protagonist? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, well, I think any protagonist uh, in any genre, I think it has to be an interesting character. It doesn't have to necessarily be a likable character, but there has to be something about the character which is fascinating and interesting that you want to know what they're gonna do and you're invested in terms of what's gonna happen to them. And I think that's really the key. Um, you know, lots, you know, obviously it, it is like one of the scripts we talked about, um, the intense psychological horror film with the, with the female uh, protagonist. You know, someone could look at, inverse that script and see her as the antagonist, but she's the main character. She's, she's, it's her story, so she's the protagonist. Um, but once again, it's like she, what she goes through, and she's a very fascinating character in terms of what she's experienced and what she's become and what happens to her and how she responds to it, it, it really much pulls you in in the horror thing in terms of, well, what's gonna happen next? You know, how, how is she gonna get out of that? How is she gonna solve that problem? What's gonna happen to her? Oh my gosh, what she just did, what is that gonna lead to? And I think especially in, in horror, that has a lot to do with it, is whether you like the protagonist or, or you don't like the protagonist or the protagonist is an anti-hero, a lot of it has to do with like, seeing what's happening to them, how they respond to it, or what they do, which makes the things happen to them, and just kind of seeing that riddle in terms of what it leads to, like what every step leads to and how the character responds. So I think the key is, it's like the character, everything the character does needs to be in character. It has to be a response that that character would have. And of course, as the movie moves along, lots of times your character will change because the character will have an arc. But it's natural and organic in terms of what's happening to this character, their changes because of the world is bombarding them based on their actions. And I think watching that unfold 
especially in terms of horror, if there's suspense and mystery, it's like one of the things that really pulls you in because you're, you're invested because you want to know what's going to happen, you know, with that character. Is it Janet Lee? Sorry, walking up to the top of the stairs and not knowing whether the flashlight works. Oh, right. And, and, yeah. and not checking it. And she's in underwear. Like, I'm, I'm taking that from another video that we, we did. Someone brought that up. Like, first of all. Yeah, yeah. Somehow filmmakers think that women are just always in their underwear, walking in dark garages or different things. But <laughs> exactly well, in the forest. Well, right? the funny thing is, it's funny. It's like it's almost the opposite of what you're asking. But there's like this trope in a horror movie where, where somebody hears something outside and they go out to investigate. <laughs> yeah. And everyone laughs at people in a horror film. But the thing is, is like, but that's what you would do in real life. Because you don't know you're in a horror film in real life. So if, you, if you're in bed and you hear something in your patio, you're gonna get up and turn the light on and probably see what the noise was. That's like naturally a human thing. But it's, it's weird, it's become a trope in horror film because people like respond and laugh at it. But if you really like think about it, it it's like, um, it's what you would naturally do. I mean, you don't hear you don't hear a noise in your patio and call 911 and lock yourself in your room if you don't know what it is. We don't know what the noise is. So that's a that's an example where it's tricky because even though your char character would in real life do something normal, it's like you have to be really careful that it, people don't see it as funny. And it's like it, it's almost like you have to fight against. You have to fight against the, these problems in a horror film because people will always be like, don't open the door. You know? <laughs> you know, the thing is, but of course in real life, you would open the door. So then you have to like, in a weird way, it's like oftentimes your protagonist becomes hyper intelligent because you have to make, because you're actively working against the audience judging the protagonist from doing things. So in a way you make them like, almost you have to make them like, sometimes like even more, Almost like they are aware they're in a horror movie. They're doing things like super self-aware. Just, it, but you're only doing it just because you don't want the audience to be like, "Why are they doing that?" But it, that can be frustrating because in real life, of course, I hear a noise in the house. I'm going to get up and investigate it. So it's like then that becomes your challenge as a filmmaker and a writer how you do that without making the audience judge the character, even though it's a perfectly logical thing to do. I mean, Lo, Laurence, uh, a lot of the main characters tropes and echoes of fear it is inspired by my wife Lo because she's she's totally fearless. She's the one who will hear the thing on the patio and immediately will be lights on, throwing open the door. And I'll be more like, well wait, let me grab something. Let me get a bat. He's <laughs> like, wait a second, what you know, don't rush outside. But uh, so actually a lot of the inspiration came from our character and echoes of fear from that and making her a very fearless character. Uh, and once you establish that as a character trope, then it stops the problem of it becoming a laughable thing because it's coming from the character. And when you realize that the character is very much someone who takes care of themselves and isn't spooked out by things, isn't creeped out by the bumps in the, and bumps in the night, uh, then, you're, then once the audience understands that and understands about the character, then you can kind of pass through some of those horror tropes that would be a problem. Uh, kind of halfway answering your question.